Sunday meeting, and, and he made remarks, asked questions, actually. Did you ever have a close call? Did you ever just miss that traffic accident or almost fall off the cliff? Or I don't remember exactly what his illustrations were. I, they weren't that good. But, uh, <clears throat> but I thought of that when Bob was talking about illustrations this morning. Uh, have you thought about that? I, I did while you were speaking, Rodney. And, and then I remembered how Jason has pounded us with God has a plan. Have you ever heard that before? God has a plan. In spite of our near misses, or even the times we didn't get delivered, God nevertheless has a plan. Oh, no, he'll never let go. In highs and lows, he's always the same, isn't he? And I think it's wonderful. I've loved Jason's emphasis on the sovereignty of God in our entire lives. <clears throat> the good, the bad, and the indifferent things that we might how we might categorize them, God's working his plan. And we've seen it throughout, well, our history as a church, but particularly throughout the Old Testament over the last several months. It's been shown recently from the, through the jet history that we went on from Genesis to Malachi. And matter of fact, by the way, isn't that young man remarkable? I sat there and thought, Everything he said I knew, but it would have taken me two days to come up with it, and he had it committed to memory, and I was quite impressed. I was impressed with Jason, but even more I was impressed with the God of the universe. He's, he's not worried. He's not afraid. He's doing his thing, I say reverently. And we saw that through the quick trip through the Old Testament and also in the intertestamental or silent period when God wasn't speaking it didn't mean he wasn't working and that's the point I've chosen this morning a, as exhibit A one event in the scriptures that demonstrate God working his plan <clears throat> and I hope to emphasize in it a question that is encountered in the text and maybe perhaps find an answer to the question hopefully by the end of the message if you remember the public reading of the scripture this morning from Genesis, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time this morning uh, because I want to continue that narrative just a little bit in Genesis chapter 18 from verses 16 through 33. Just to bring us up to date, remember Sarah has just laughed at the prophecy, you're going to have a son, she laughed, and then she said, no I didn't. And the angel said, yeah, you did. That's where we are. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may command his children, his household, after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. <clears throat> 
So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord, or still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Maybe seated again. Thank you. Such a familiar story, isn't it? I mean, is there anyone here who hasn't heard that before? Uh, it's awfully tempting just to pass over it without much contemplation. I mean, there's a lot of nice little phrases in there that you could fashion a, a sermon after. Uh, Abraham negotiates with God. They don't find enough, you know the story, they don't find enough righteous people. Lot escapes, Lot's wife gets salted, etc., etc., etc. We know the story. What about the question, though? The question I saw in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, do what is just? You see Abraham negotiating with God? Some passages in the scripture trouble me a little bit because, well, they're just hard for me to understand sometimes. I mean, wrestling with the angel, with God, with Jesus, hips out of joint, and uh, here... Abraham saying, God, what about this? Let's negotiate. You, you want 50, would you take 45? It seems an odd thing to me. I don't understand it, but I do understand this. When I say, God, you wouldn't do a thing like that, would you? I'm beginning to think that I can tell God what to do rather than just simply saying, God, I don't understand. I've told you many times what a fine father I had. Quite a gentle man. He never reprimanded me in any way for asking him why. But I never shook my fist at him and said, why, old man, either, because he would have knocked me into the next county probably. 
But God is not offended when we ask why, because we don't know why, do we? Abraham is negotiating. I wonder if Abraham was just posing a rhetorical question. He was basically saying, you will be just. Or was he still negotiating, trying to work out the negotiations, trying to frame the situation to his advantage? I mean, put God in his in a box or now. You know, if I remind him that that wouldn't be right, I don't think if he did that, then he won't do it. Do we treat God that way sometimes? I don't think we would publicly. I don't think I would do that and let you know it if I could avoid it. But sometimes I fear that I think that way because I'm made out of dirt. I honestly have to ask myself, do I really believe that he's working his plan? Do I really believe he's working his plan for my good and ultimately for his glory? I hope so. May we pray together. Lord, you made us. We're strengthened by the knowledge that you understand we're just dust. You understand our frame. You know us. You made us. And we know, at least intellectually, that you're working all things after the counsel of your own will, for your glory, and for our good. However, Lord, it just doesn't seem like it sometimes. And we're weak, and we're discouraged, and we're afraid. Help us, Lord, to remember that you're not weak, you're not discouraged, and you're not afraid, and you're in charge. Forgive us, Lord, because we presume to tell you how you should behave rather than follow the command you've given us how we should behave. Help us to do that, we pray, and accomplish your purpose in this meeting today, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Again, referring to Rodney's remarks, and like him, uh, perhaps you should hear just a little bit about yours truly. I appreciate Rodney saying that, you know, you may not know me very well, but this is how the Lord worked in my life. Well, I'm going to talk to you just a bit about me. First of all, I'm made out of dirt. I'm a son of a sinner. That good man I was talking about, he was a sinner too. I was born with an innate desire to rule my own universe. And you were too. Problem is, I realized one day, I don't have a universe. I can't rule a universe that's mine because I don't have one. Rather, everything God makes, he owns. Like it or not, he alone owns and rules over everything. And he made you. And he made me. He's God, and we're not. As I relate a little personal history, I want you to follow as a fellow traveler because you can say some of the same things, some different things, but you also had your experiences in life as it goes around. I learned a lot, Steve will tell you this is true, about the providence the sovereignty of God in the military. I'm sure glad he ain't like some of them sergeants I knew. I know that the first I was a paratrooper, the first time I made a parachute jump at night I realized when I got out in the air and looked down, nobody told me what the trees looked like. All I could see was dark and darker. And I thought, well, the 
dark that's not darker is probably not trees. Make a long story short, I said, Lord, you know what trees are, I don't. As it turned out, my parachute was in a tree, but I was on the ground. It worked out just great. Despite my failings and their legion, there's many of them. Some of them you may even know of, but I can promise you, you don't know the whole story. I have learned to accept God's ownership over me. I'm sold. It's not, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Now, from time to time, I don't behave like I know that, but I know it. Do you know it? Is that true in your life? I walked through the rice paddies of South Vietnam, and I knew there was AK-47s. I wasn't stupid. I didn't just walk along fearless or foolishly glib, but I walked along absolutely confident that God was not asleep and he was aware of my circumstances. I also learned a lot at the School of God's Sovereignty as a missionary. I remember watching my wife being confronted with a Zulu man with a big block of cement threatening her with it. And he said, I thought, oh, this, this don't look good. And before I could get there even, he said, this is our weapon. First of all, he said, give me back our land. I thought, she said, well, I don't have your land, buddy. <clears throat> he said, this is our weapon. And Barbara took her Bible and said, well, this is our weapon. He said, I'd like to join your church. <clears throat> he had been drinking a little bit, but it's still a frightening situation. My family was stranded on the highway in South Africa once with bag and baggage. We had the dog and the potted plants and everything in our Volkswagen bus. The car failed on a dangerous stretch of highway at a time. I know it's hard for you to relate, but it was a very dangerous circumstance. And I'm thinking, what do I do? Well, I guess I better pray. You know what I prayed? The only thing that came to my mind, I said, Lord... I reckon you can see us. And that was assurance to me. Not that we're going to be delivered, that's for sure. But that he can see us. And he's in charge. And I can trust him. Well, as you can see, we did escape that day without any difficulty. I stood by my mother's bedside as she left this life. I watched her take her last breath. And I said goodbye to her. Matter of fact, what I said was, I love you, Ma. Tell Dad, I said, hey. I was sad, grieving, but yet I knew she was in the Lord's care, and I didn't grieve like those who don't have hope. The point is this, and I want to get to it. It's not to set myself forward as an example of steadfast trust, because it's just not true, but rather to declare that I've learned that God is absolutely in charge, and we can trust him. Not to do what we hope you to do, but to do what is just and what is ultimately for his glory. Some of you probably know already that I love the word providence. I like the word providence, but I love the concept of providence. Providence, the definition I would use is not fate, not karma, not luck, but God's provision. 
Now borrow from Dr. J. Vernon McGee these words. <clears throat> he says, what is providence? Here's a theological definition. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 103, that's your cue back there in Psalm 103. Oh, you got it. I tell you, it's nice to have a good assistant back there. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And Paul in Ephesians, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now folks, I'm just a man and you, a human being like you, and it baffles my little pea brain. How, how can we be responsible for our actions and God still be controlling everything? And the answer is, I don't know, but I can read. And he says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He's God, and we're not. Jason <clears throat> sent me a text while I was studying for this a few days ago, I guess when he was leaving town, and he asked how I was doing. And I wrote him back, I'm shipwrecked on sovereignty. Aren't we all? No matter what kind of circle, we were having a difficult time in our family at that time, and God hadn't changed. He's not scared. He's not worried. He's not afraid. And he's in charge. So if we're going to be shipwrecked, let's be shipwrecked on his sovereignty. Trust, Not trusting him that everything will be okay. Because folks, sometimes things aren't okay. But he doesn't change. Friends like Abraham, let's consider the issue. Will not the ruler of the entire earth do right? <clears throat> Listen. He will fulfill every promise. Again, from Dr. McGee, three words. Three words that we need to keep in mind to understand providence. That is, in relation to the material world, how God relates. First word is creation. McGee says, we must understand by creation that God, by his fiat word, spoke this universe into existence. The only way that you and I, certainly as Christians, will ever understand how this universe began is by faith. We understand that God brought this universe into existence, and the only way we can know this is by revelation. <clears throat> Romans ten seventeen. so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This morning, early, we have a kind of routine with Granny. You know, she gets her breakfast, and she gets one medicine first, and then her blood pressure, and then her other medicine, and this routine we're going through, and I thought, well, Granny would like to watch something on TV, so I go, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to that good old faithful place called Netflix, and I see an icon there that says, Race for Life. Now, that sounds good, it's got a line in it, I like that stuff. And immediately, they begin to tell us that the hero was Charles Darwin, who discovered the fact that Every life came from one parent, all of us. I mean, snails and slips and snugs and all, all everything, all of us. And 
the race for life <clears throat> by evolution, everybody that tries the hardest, you know, the survival of the fittest, and I'm thinking, we wouldn't know if God didn't tell us that he created the heavens and the earth. So part of the providence, the sovereignty of God in our lives comes from the fact that he made us. He owns us. Everything. Now, the folks in this net, netwit, net, netwit, net, netwit Netflix <clears throat> production, they didn't know that. Never mentioned God. The second word that Dr. McGee uses is preservation. It's a tremendous word. It's, it's God's preservation that the universe held together. We know that. He is the radiance, Hebrews 1 says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <clears throat> the King James Version says, in him all things consist, literally, held together. R.C. Sproul is famous for saying there's not one maverick molecule. That's the God we have, with whom we have to do. And we can pretend to create a God that is not in charge, but the God of the Bible rules everything. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The third word is providence. We have creation, preservation, and providence. Providence is the way that God is directing the universe. He is moving it into tomorrow. He is moving it into the future by his providence. Providence means to provide. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Not to our glory, but to his glory. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Westminster Confection, Confession, asks this question, What are God's works of providence? Answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. I don't know. I'm not a linguist or anything. There seem like a lot of alls in there, and I don't think it leaves anything outside the purview and control of God. We know that we're not excused because God is sovereign. Wednesday with the teens, we were talking about prayer. And I asked the question, if God's sovereign, he's ruling everything, why should we pray? And of course, the answer is, prayer is also part of his divine plan for us, part of his working his plan in us. We've seen him work his plan in detail, in, particularly in the Old Testament, but he's still doing it. He's working his plan with us as well. Here's a well-known biblical portion that reveals God's particular involvement in some lives, some more radically than others. Jason Boland, everybody turn around and look at Jason. Then everybody else turn around and look at Steve. Then everybody else look at me. Both Matthew and Luke say that Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. <laughs> so I suggest that some of us are worth more sparrows than others. <clears throat> But isn't it something? I mean, it's funny, but God knows that too. What an excellent God he is. 
But the hard question still remains, and this is, is the judge of the whole universe, the whole earth, always just? I've already confessed to you that it doesn't seem like it sometimes to me. We all know Romans 8.28, don't we? I bet we could even... I say again, we all know Romans 8.28, don't we? I'm doing this for for Andrew's benefit back there. We all know Romans 8.28. Well, so we have a glitch. I don't even know how he's doing it, so I can't complain. (laughs) And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's his purpose again. He's got a purpose. He has a plan, and he's working it, whether we see it or not. Well, you and I are not alone in confusion, not even among the first people to be confused. We've already seen Abraham at Mamre. What about all those sailors that were with Jonah? I bet they're wondering, what's going on here? This doesn't seem right at all. Or maybe with Paul, and I want to show you that in Acts chapter 27, Paul's on his way to Rome. Again, you know this story too. The scene is at the point Paul's a prisoner going to Rome and he gives the prophetic warning about a storm that's coming. And we pick it up in verse 8. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, the tenth day of the seventh month was a fast time, according to Levi, or Leviticus, and Numbers both. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Well, can't say the Apostle Paul didn't warn them. He did warn them. But the soldier guarding Paul sought professional advice. He rather trust the pilot and the owner of the ship. So let's rejoin Paul and his shipmates at verse 24, well after much damage has occurred due to the storm. <clears throat> I think verse, probably verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Interesting statement from Paul. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
Do you have faith in God that it will be exactly as we've been told? Not that everything that we want to work out works out the way we want it to, but that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he will always remember whose children we are, and we reenact it here every time, every Sunday, and that one day he will return for us, and I think that we can trust him, or we can have faith in God, the God whom, to whom I belong and worship, that he will do exactly what he said. It's good for us, not just Paul. God never broke a promise. He has a plan, and he's completing it in us. He that began a good work in you will complete it. Most of us remember the ultimate conclusion to Paul's adventure, too, just like we remember Lot's wife and the pillar of salt and how all that worked out for them. I won't recall each detail, the precious cargo that was overboard and the frenzied effort to save lives, but simply go to the completion of the promise from God delivered upon those who likely didn't even believe in God. And that begins in verse 39 of Acts 27. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plans. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, all were brought safely to land. I wonder what Hollywood would do with that if they put it in a movie. God has not promised us that we may be carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease, as the old hymn says. But he has promised to never leave us, forsake us. He's provided everything that pertains to life and godliness. Sometimes it seems like we can't even find a plank or a piece of our ship's life to hang on to. And some of you know that as well or better than me. But we know the one whom the winds and waves obey, and he has a plan. It's not our plan, it's his plan. Trite, simple answers are not honest. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense to me, perhaps not to you either. I've looked into the eyes of a young father as I served at the grave of his stillborn son. Almost makes me tear up even now. I didn't have any simple answers. I didn't have any fancy words, Latin words, Bible verses, really. Matter of fact, I indeed pondered myself, how could this be part of God's plan? Then I remembered that God is in heaven and I was on the earth. That he's God and I'm not. So I simply cried with the man in his grief and prayed that ultimately 
God would receive glory. Again, we've enjoyed a wonderful trip through the last portion of history in the Old Testament. I still shake my head at the excellent job that Jason did preaching from Genesis to Malachi. Thoroughly well. God definitely has maintained his sovereign plan. We've seen it. Though it must not have always seemed like it to those who were exercised by it. Like it doesn't always seem like it to us. This is where Paul's shipmates were. And this is where you and I are too. Oh, we may not be in a storm, even a small storm. It's certainly not a real physical storm. But we all suffer from vacillating trust and worry. Matter of fact, we say we don't sin, but we worry. Well, we worry is a sin. And we're all guilty of it. This is also where Abraham and Sarah were so many years ago, living their part of God's story. Because it's God's story, and we're actors in it. Can you imagine them, old people? I mean, you know, I joke about being the oldest in here and everything, but I'm not as old as they were. Really? A son at my age? Really? Just for a few righteous people, you could save a city and... He won't do it. Doesn't seem right, does it? I imagine that Sarah especially still shook her head and wondered how can this be? The question remains for us either as a declaration of the Creator's justice, mercy, and grace or as negotiation or a challenge to the God who made us and owns us Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? There's two outstanding women who, during my lifetime, I've read after and observed that you'll all be familiar with Elizabeth Elliot and her first husband, Jim Elliot, and her subsequent husbands, and how she served the Lord and how she lost people she loved and yet trusted the Lord. Another woman I'm thinking of is Johnny Erickson Tata. About my age, about the time, I don't know if it was 1968, the year we were married, but long about then, she suffered that injury and she'd been paralyzed 50 years or thereabout. And I saw a quote from Johnny Tata this morning, and I didn't get it literally, but this was the gist of it. God sometimes allows what he hates to accomplish something he loves. The question remains, either a declaration of our creator's justice, mercy, and grace, or a challenge to the God who made us and owns us. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, the good news is I'm to the application not so good news, I have three or four pages of application. I thought I'd do that in honor of Jason Moore. <clears throat> Shall not the judge of the universe, the, all the earth, do what is just? What do you say? Amen? Yes? Well, the absolute answer is yes. God who made us and whose eyes everything are open to, all things are naked 
and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. He provided a lamb to take away our sin. Three points I'm going to give you this morning as a way of application. And I borrow these from the words of Dr. McGee I read earlier. Number one is recognize your creator. Secondly, rejoice in his preservation. And what's most important, I think, trust his providence. Find another page. You'd think it would probably be a no-brainer that we need to remember our Creator. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. Evil days come not when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Well, some of the evil days have come to me, but I still got a lot of pleasure in this earthly realm. But it should be necessary for me to remind you that we need to recognize our Creator. But the world is completely saturated our culture is saturated with acceptance of evolutionary theory and you say well that doesn't matter that's not us yes it's your children it's your grandchildren and i'm afraid it can be you and i even professed christians assume that evolution organic evolution is an established scientific truth matter of fact we're just a bunch of dumb old hillbillies Yea, may our tribe increase, I say. When the whole world, I mean, how could you claim to be a Christian and not believe that God created things just like he said he did? Or what kind of a savior evolved from monkeys? How would he be the second Adam? It might be the 14,000th chimp. Now, I enjoy, I hope you do, National Geographic, I think wonderful. I like BBC, Earth, Discovery Channel. I like all those things. And almost without exception, they all just speak as a given that things happen by accident and nobody did it and it took billions of years to happen. Well, I can say you can believe that if you want to, but how can you do that and believe Jesus Christ? Cherubim in Isaiah 6 says, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Luther said, the earth is a theater of his glory. How can you not see it? Romans says, they're willingly ignorant. Everybody knows. And yet, you and I as Christians... Sometimes we're a little bit embarrassed to be creationists. Shame on us. I mean, you can have more degrees than a Fahrenheit thermometer and be dumb in spiritual issues. The Apostle John puts it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So remember, the next time some narrator refers to a chimpanzee as our nearest relative, because our creator breathed life into Adam and fashioned Mother Eve from his rib, 
We, not apes, are made in the image of God. And this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's what the Bible says. I think I'll just believe the Bible. And this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So first application point, remember your creator. Model this trust. Declare this truth. Don't be ashamed of our creator. Second point is to rejoice in his provision. I've said many times that nobody likes a hound dog or a plate of biscuits and gravy or pepperoni rolls or a pickup truck or a football game. Just a few more days. Uh, than I do. Christians should enjoy the earth. He made it for us, but we hold it like this, not like this, because those aren't the things that last. He's made a provision of things, stuff. I got lots of stuff. I got so much stuff. I wish y'all come over and get three-fourths of it. But more than that, I have an eternal kind of life already that he's provided for me. You may be asking, how should I rejoice in his provision? Well, just look around, man. You live in West Virginia. There's a lot of things to rejoice under the sun. And you ought to haul off and do it. But under the S-O-N sun, the son of God, we have that eternal, eternal kind of life now and an everlasting, eternal life into the future. That's why... Johnny Erickson taught it and praise God for her husband that cares so faithfully for her, for the platform God has given her to testify of God's grace. And have you seen what she can do with an artist's brush between her toes? What a trophy of God's grace. We live in almost heaven. More to rejoice over is the fact that we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So remember your creator, rejoice in his provision and thirdly trust his providence. I like it that the church fathers often use the word providence with a capital P as a name of God because it's his providence he is providence this is the essence of what I want to share with you this morning I wonder what Sarah thought when she laughed at the predicted pregnancy. And again, when she denied she laughed, what was she thinking? She was fearful, but she really didn't believe it, but she was afraid to make light of it. I wonder what Abraham was thinking when he dealt with the thought of God actually destroying two great cities. Imagine with me the fear and anxiety of the soldiers and sailors on the sea of the Apostle Paul. What about Paul? He's human too. You think he ever thought he might have chosen a better occupation than missionary 
Oh, wait. He didn't choose. He was chosen, like you and me. Do we ever doubt that the ruler of heaven and earth will judge rightly? I remember, you probably remember the poem about the weaver. And I know Josh Buttram had a lovely song about the fact that the weaving, we only see the underside, but God sees the top where it's all pretty and makes sense. I sometimes doubt the ruler of heaven and earth will do rightly. But far be it from creatures to challenge the creator. And yet sometimes we do. Our God in his providence has even planned for our doubts, our weakness to bring about ultimate good and his glory. Again, from the Shorter Catechism, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, how many creatures are his? He made everything. Everything is his, and he's governing. This is the message. God's providence is good. He's in heaven. We're on the earth. He's God. We're not. He chose us in Christ. We can trust him. If you don't know that you know Jesus Christ, I'd love to speak to you about the one who will change your forever. Will you stand with me for a benediction this morning? Not what you typically find as a benediction, but from Isaiah's words, these words. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And all God's children said, Amen.